The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Svetlana Monets explains why Ukraine will not accept compromise in any form. Rana Mitter details Japan's plans for an anti-China alliance. And Mia Levitin reads her review of Muppets in Moscow by Natasha Lance-Rogoff. Up first, Svetlana Monets. Among Ukrainians, there is a little debate about how the war will end. The overwhelming consensus is that it cannot conclude until Russia has been fully repelled and Ukraine's borders are returned to the 1991 frontier, when independence was declared after the Soviet Union collapsed. This means removing Russian troops from Crimea and the self-proclaimed republics of Luhansk and Donetsk in the Donbass region. Of course, it is not an easy mission. But for Ukrainians, the alternative is unthinkable. The mass graves uncovered in Bucha have shown us what Russian occupation means. We also have seen, in the broken promises of the Minsk agreements, what any truce with Vladimir Putin is worth. Why should we agree to a fake peace deal when we know Putin will ignore it and unleash war on us again? As a Ukrainian, it's odd to read some of the theories about what's going on. We are Poles fighting because we have been put up to it by the West? No, we held off Putin with very little help in the first few weeks of war. Even if the West stops arming us, we will continue to fight. We know the alternative is worse, subjugation and cultural annihilation. Discussions in the West over Ukraine's future often stall when it comes to the question of Crimea and the Donbass. It's argued that many Russian speakers look to Moscow for protection and see Ukraine as an invader. Yes, Ukraine's history means we have many Russian speakers who once felt closer affinity with Moscow than Kyiv, and once feared discrimination at the hands of what they have perceived to be Ukrainian nationalists. It was a similar problem to those of Northern Ireland and Cyprus, historic immigration patterns creating communities with competing identities. That's why many in the West are uneasy about taking sides. But this analysis ignores the extent to which things have changed since 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea and eastern Ukraine. That year, independence referendums were staged in Donetsk and Luhansk and overseen by soldiers in unmarked uniforms. Like all wildcat referendums, the votes were boycotted by those who opposed the separatists. That's not to say that public opinion wasn't split. Polls in early 2014 suggested that about a quarter of the voters in the two areas wanted to be part of Russia. However, this was before Putin's mercenaries began flattening rather than saving the Donbass. Over the past nine years, a mass exodus has taken place, with millions in the east fleeing the fighting between Ukrainian and Russian soldiers. The region was looted by separatists and the local economy destroyed. It fell to Kyiv to pay pensions and provide electricity and water to these territories Putin now claims are part of Russia. The original Donbass hopes of wealth from Ruski Mir were quickly shattered. 
Crimea was different, it holds huge ideological and political value for Putin. Since taking it, he has filled it with money and Russians. I witnessed this when I hitchhiked around it a few years ago. I also saw how Ukrainian loyalists had learned to keep quiet, showing a blue and yellow flag would risk imprisonment or deportation. Today, if the survivors of bombed out eastern Ukraine and those in Crimea were asked if they would prefer to live under Putin or under Kyiv, their answer would probably be very different. That's why the prior 2014 opinion polls for Crimea and the Donbass should now be discarded. There is no question that nine years of war have seen public opinion amongst Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine turn sharply against Moscow. In part, this is why Putin invaded again last year. His constituency in Ukraine was shrinking. At the start of the invasion, it seemed that Ukraine had no chance of winning. Now, victory is possible. My friends who fled Donetsk nine years ago have a realistic hope of returning home under a Ukrainian flag. Self-belief has become essential to survive. We are optimistic but not naive. Peace talks will happen sooner or later. There may be a negotiation over Crimea. It may become self-governing within Ukraine borders. But all Russian troops would have to leave. Ukrainians will keep fighting in the belief that to cut a deal that offers Putin a compensatory slice of Ukraine would be to guarantee another war. That was Svetlana Monets. Next, Ron Amitter. As the world's attention focused last month on whether to send tanks to Ukraine, Japan's Prime Minister, Kishida Fumio, was on a whistle-stop tour of the West. He held various meetings with G7 leaders, including Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden. His objective was clear, to create a new alliance that can counter China. Japan adopted a peace constitution in 1947, when it was occupied by the United States, pledging that the country would never again wage war. For the past half a century, the military budget was capped at 1% of GDP, and Japan sought to project its image abroad as a disarmed or semi-disarmed economic giant, an Asian Germany of sorts. Now all of this has changed. Kishida is increasing Japan's defence spending over the next five years by nearly 60%, and acquiring weapons it has long avoided, such as counter-strike missiles, long-range precision weapons, and American tomahawks. There are plans for more joint exercises with US forces in the Pacific, and Tokyo is investing heavily in cyber capacities. Kishida described this new alliance as a turning point. That was an understatement. Japan is making its military priorities clear for the first time since the end of the Second World War, and is seeking to reshape Asia's economy at a time when America's economic clout in the region is giving way to China's. Kishida's meeting with Biden was part of a wider US pushback against China. Lieutenant General James Beerman, commanding general of the 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force and of Marine Forces Japan, recently told the Financial Times that we, meaning America, are setting the theatre in Japan, in the Philippines, in other locations. That theatre, he implies, is one where the performance might be a US-China conflict. Japan's decision to become part of the theatre in question is inseparable from the issue of Taiwan. This week, a leaked memo outlined in stark terms 
American Fears of a Chinese Invasion. General Mike Minihan, who heads the US Air Mobility Command, wrote in this private briefing, I hope I'm wrong. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. He reasoned that Taiwan's next presidential elections are in 2024, as are the US's, potentially creating a distracted America, which would benefit the Chinese president. Xi's team, reason and opportunity are all aligned for 2025, he concluded. Beijing, which hosts US Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Sunday and Monday, warned that General Minahan's comments were reckless. To counter China's claims over the East and South China Seas, Japan has been forming a quad with Australia, India and the US on naval manoeuvres. Meanwhile, America's marine deployments on Japan's southwestern islands near the Taiwan Strait are being upgraded. Last week, the US Marine Corps opened Camp Blaz, their first new base in 70 years, on the Pacific island of Guam. It will have 5,000 Marines and is partially funded by Japan. The US is also pushing the Philippines to allow them to open four new military bases in the Asia-Pacific. In return, the US has offered Manila military equipment, including drones, giving Filipino forces the ability to monitor activity in the South China Sea. It's easy to see why Kishida believes that Japan should be prepared to join America in any contingency plans for a Chinese attack on Taiwan. An invasion could easily drag Japan into a conflict that would directly threaten its security. And Tokyo knows how bloody a confrontation with China could be. A recent war game run by Washington's Center for Strategic and International Studies think tank suggested a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in the mid-2020s might fail, but only at a very significant cost in American, Japanese and Taiwanese lives as well as money. Besides Taiwan, there is another maritime dispute that Japan fears could flare up this year, the Senkaku Islands. Japan controls these uninhabited strips situated in the middle of the East China Sea. Yet China refers to the islands as the Diaoyu and refuses to acknowledge Japan's control, instead making a rival historical claim. For decades, the Chinese have argued that they have authority from the Cairo Declaration, made in 1943, which stated that after Japan's defeat, certain unspecified Japanese imperial island territories would be restored to China. This November marks the declaration's 80th anniversary and China could mark it with naval drills near the islands. One problem with the new Japanese-Western alliance is that the sides are not on the same page about every authoritarian state. There are only two countries which Tokyo perceives as an existential threat, China and North Korea. Russia doesn't feature high on the problem list, whereas for Europeans, it is the major adversary, although Kishida recently indicated that he was willing to visit Ukraine possibly as a nod to his European allies. A further complication is that Japanese business continues to be a major investor in China. While Japanese companies are slowly moving some of their factories out of the country, the internal Chinese market itself is still a large prize. In 2021, Japan invested more than 8 billion US dollars there. There is understandable skepticism too about whether its new defence strategy fully adds up. 
The government was already beset by a heavy national debt before the decision to increase the defence budget. It's a recipe for waste and inefficient allocation of resources, says Jeff Kingston, professor of history at Temple University in Tokyo. Japanese politicians, he argues, have submitted a poorly thought-out Christmas wish list that leaves defence analysts puzzled. Domestic issues could also threaten Japan's plans. The country is getting old. The economic boom ended in the early 1990s, and it has been suffering a demographic crisis for longer than that. A quarter of its population is now aged over 65. Younger people are increasingly reluctant to get married and have children. Kishida has even warned that his country is on the brink of not being able to function because of the declining birth rate. People across all age groups are wary of China. But Japan doesn't yet give the impression of a society gearing up for a full-blown conflict. Kishida's ambition to turn Japan into a military power to take on the People's Liberation Army might be real. Yet his plans will have to take into account demographic and geopolitical constraints that will not be easily overcome. That was Ron Amitta. Next, Mia Levitin. How the Muppets went to Moscow as ambassadors for democracy. In 1993, Natasha Lance Rogoff was tasked with introducing the American puppets to Russia in the hope of cultivating peace, love, and understanding. In this engaging memoir, Natasha Lance Rogoff recounts the experience of bringing Sesame Street to Yeltsin's Russia. A Russophile who changed her name from Susan to Natasha as a teenager, Lance Rogoff had been working in Moscow for more than a decade as a reporter and documentary filmmaker, when she was approached to be the executive producer of Udica Sezam in 1993. No one can say no to Elmo, a Sesame Workshop executive insisted. Launched in 1969 to bridge the socioeconomic gap in education among American preschoolers, by the early 1990s, Sesame Street had created nearly two dozen foreign co-productions with programming adapted for cultural differences. In the wake of the Cold War, Senator Joe Biden spearheaded congressional support for bringing Sesame Street to Russia in hopes that the Muppets would act as ambassadors for democracy and free markets. Despite the show's success in countries such as India, Mexico, and South Africa, Russia presented unique problems. Lance Rogoff was tasked with finding trustworthy co-investors, a creative team who could collaborate with the mothership, and a broadcaster able to beam episodes across the 11 time zones of the former Soviet Union. To say it was a bumpy ride is an understatement. Political instability and funding issues threatened to derail the project, with Lance Rogoff regularly having to plead her case at HQ in New York, where she had also left her increasingly anxious fiancé. Translating Sesame Street's ebullient and idealistic outlook to Mother Russia was not only incredibly difficult, she writes, but also incredibly dangerous. In that period of Wild West capitalism, fortunes were being made and lost overnight. Not one but three of their potential business partners were the subject of assassination attempts. The oligarch Boris Berezovsky survived, for the time being. The journalists Vlad Listyev and Alek Slabinka tragically did not. Soldiers armed with AK-47s once stormed Ulitsa Sezam's office without explanation, 
confiscating scripts, equipment, and a life-sized Elmo. Strikes halted production as employees went unpaid by a Russian partner. A pregnant Lance Rogoff had to bring $8,000 in cash from New York in her bra to keep it going. Parts of the set had to be brought piecemeal from the U.S., including a 40-foot tree that led to a 10-hour stint at airport customs. Cultural adaptation was also challenging, with the show's first head writer lobbying for the inclusion of a cannibalistic Baba Yaga. Russia has a long, rich, and revered puppet tradition dating from the 16th century, she told Lance Rogoff. We don't need your American moppets. The music director, a classically trained composer, deemed rock songs, quote, polluting. Capitalism clashed with the legacy of communism. When Lance Rogoff suggested using a lemonade stand to teach cooperation, her colleagues were horrified at the thought of showing kids engaged in, quote, dirty mercantile activities. Russian humor relies on irony, parody, and wordplay, without a tradition of the slapstick comedy that appeals to children, Lance Rogoff notes. Could Elmo's and Cookie Monster's wacky, light-hearted banter even be translated for Dostoevskian, angst-ridden Russians, she wondered? One proposed script had musicians feeling sadness in their souls as they play a song of suffering. Another writer suggested a storyboard to teach the letter D, featuring a sad, furry Muppet slowly mopping a linoleum floor as a voice narrates D for depresia. Having managed to overcome such creative hurdles and secure both financing and broadcasters, the first episode of Ulitsa Sezam aired on the 22nd of October, 1996. It was an instant hit. Millions of children fell in love with Bert and Ernie, Elmo and Cookie Monster, as well as their custom-made companions, Zelyuboba, Businka, and Kubik. As in the U.S., where Sesame Street made a point of showing racial diversity, the cast represented ethnic minorities from across the former Soviet Union. Muppets in Moscow's epilogue, however, takes a somber turn. While Lance Rogoff left the show in 1998, it continued to air for more than a decade. In 2010, no longer supported by Putin's people at the television networks, the street lamps on Ulitsa Sezam went dark, signaling an end to the era of optimism heralded by Glasnost. Many of those involved in the series chose to step away from television production rather than yield to the uniformly pro-Kremlin and propagandistic programming on Russian state television. Lance Rogoff writes. The book went to press after Putin had launched his war in Ukraine. In a postscript, the author expresses her desperate worry for her teammates, who had since moved back to Kiev and Lvov, as well as those in Moscow who had spoken out against the regime. On a trip back to Moscow in early 2020, one of the original directors declared that he no longer had any hope for democracy in Russia in his lifetime. Elmo may have been irresistible, but the American Moppets were unable single-handedly to usher in an era of peace, love, and understanding. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. <laughs>